I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello. Welcome to episode one of the Appendix and Book Club podcast. I'm your host, Hoy, and I'm with my lovely and talented co-host, Jeff Goat. Ooh, lovely. I like that. This week, we are reading The Complete Enchanter by L. Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt. Yes, and this series of books has a complicated and convoluted publication history. The, the, the first time they were collected together in paperback was in 1960 with The Incomplete Enchanter, and that was the first two novellas, The Roaring Trumpet and The Mathematics of Magic. In 1976, when paperback technology uh, improved and they were able to get more pages in a book, they published The Complete Enchanter, which includes the first two stories that I mentioned before and The Castle of Iron. That is what we will be covering today. With a glorious, glorious Hildebrandt Brothers cover, by I say. Yes, very, very lovely. And in 1980, there was a paperback publication of The Wall of Serpents and the Green Magician. Those collected the two stories that follow this. Then in 1989, there's The Complete, Complete Enchanter that has all five of these original stories. But uh, Elsprague de Camp didn't stop there. He continued to write these stories in the last decade of his life in the 1990s without Fletcher Pratt. And those stories are collected in addition to the original five in the 2007 hardback version of The Mathematics of Magic. So you have many ways in which you can go about reading these stories. Not only that, uh, Al Sprague de Camp also collaborated and also allowed certain other writers to write in the Enchanter series, namely Christopher Stasheff, uh, Holly Lyle, and others. And specifically, Tom Wham of TSR wrote a story as well. And with our very first episode, we're also doing our first episode with one of the members of the Swordsmen and Sorcerers Guild of America. Saga to you. The Swordsmen and Sorcerers Guild of America was a group of folks that included Paul Anderson, Lynn Carter, Elsprague DeCamp, John Jakes, Fritz Leiber, Michael Moorcock, Andre Norton, and Jack Vance, and Roger Zelazny was a late addition. So many of the authors who we will be covering were a part of this, uh, a part of this... August body? August body. I like that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So that's pretty exciting. And um, unless you have anything to add, I think it might be time to go into the library. Absolutely. And in the library, we find our pristine copy of The Complete Enchanter and... And my tattered copy. And his tattered copy. (laughs) And what can you tell us about The Complete Enchanter? Well, before we get into The Complete Enchanter, I would like us to look at our High Gygaxian word of the day. And I'm not quite sure how to say it myself, so I'm going to let... Google, tell me how to say it. Sesquipedalian. Ah. And what does that mean, Jeff? Sesquipedalian. Sesquipedalian means long with many syllables or just long because the way it's used in this story is to describe the troll's nose. He has a sesquipedalian proboscis. Sesquipedalian proboscis? Or proboscis. Proboscis. Thank you. A sesquipedalian proboscis. (laughs) Uh, but for those of you who remember your A&D&D first edition monster manual, that is the troll with a long green nose. Exactly. So the mathematics of magic, I will now read to you the description on the back of the paperback. Because back in the day when you were looking at the, at the rack, this is how you would have found out what this book was about. The mathematics of magic. That was the greatest discovery of the ages. At least Professor Harold Shea th- thought so. With the proper equations, he could instantly transport himself and his buddy Reed Chalmers back in time to a wondrous land of ancient legend. But slips in time were a hazard, and Shay's magic did not always work, at least not quite as he expected. A dragon spell might yield a hundred dragons, or even worse, one-tenth of a dragon. And the various imaginary lands to which he traveled, from the land of Thor and Odin to the castle of Otranto, held countless dangers that Shay could not predict. So that's what it says on the tin, but is that what's actually inside? I think it's a pretty accurate description of what's going on in there. I don't know. What do you think? 
Um, I would say so. Uh, they're obviously more glossing over the second book, uh, which is uh, inspired by the Fairy Queen, uh, Fairy Queen by mm-hmm. Thomas, uh, by Spencer. But uh, let's start with the first book then, uh, which is the Roaring Trumpet. Yes, the Roaring Trumpet. I would say that of the three, the Roaring Trumpet is the one I enjoyed the most. Okay. Uh, the Roaring Trumpet uh, sets the stage, and Harold Shea and his colleagues have determined that through the proper magic, uh, mathematical formulas, they can transpose themselves into different dimensions, and they end up in the world of Norse myth. Um, and, and that was not where he intended to go. His plan was to go to the world of Irish myth, I believe, if I recall correctly. I, I, I believe you may be correct, and he does not end up there for many books to come. So. <laughs> um and this one, in many ways, may be the most familiar to uh, uh, the current day public because the other uh, subsequent volumes uh, refer to actual uh, literary works. Um, but let's talk about the uh, the Roaring Trumpet. So uh, in terms of uh, you got the most out of this, out of the stories, you would say. I think it's the most fun. Okay. Um, of the three, it's the only one where Harold is the only one who travels back in time. As the stories progress, the cast of characters who are traveling, and I I said back in time, what I should say is traveling to another dimension. Uh, When they travel to these other dimensions, um, in each each following book, you get more and more people who are doing it. And they do kind of get a tendency to start to feel kind of very cluttered and busy. And what I liked about the first story is it's just Harold, and he's just this guy who doesn't really understand how to interact with the world. And here he is in the land of Norse gods, interacting with Odin and Thor and Heimdall and Loki, going on these like little crazy adventures at the end of time with the giants or against the giants. It is worth noting that Harold is uh, allegedly uh, a very educated psychologist, but he's actually kind of a smart ass and doesn't actually (laughs) seem to deal with people that well. That is true, uh, and and he's prone to uh, prone to crazy crazy costumes, even in his even even in his, even in his home world. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, Robin Hood type outfits and walking around with a uh, sharpened epee. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I wonder to what extent maybe Harold is a stand-in for the authors themselves, who are both very educated men as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, is there any specific uh, plot that uh, we need to talk about, or are we just talking about hijinks in the Norse, the world of Norse myth? Well, maybe we can go ahead and just kind of chat about roughly what the what the next two stories are about, too, and then maybe we can just kind of go into free form and talk about what we thought about the whole thing. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Sure. So uh, it, it, he meets the uh, gods of Norse myth, and as they say, he uh, battles the giants, and uh, we will certainly uh, relate this back to... Um, uh, various fa- say, very famous series of D&D modules because uh, mm-hmm. the, the uh, evidence is uh, right there in front of us. Yep. Um, the next work is uh, very much inspired by the world of the Fairy Queen by uh, Spencer. And the third book is inspired by uh, Orlando Furioso by uh, Ariosto. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the first book, he's very abruptly taken out of the battle at the end of time and dropped back into his real world. In the beginning of the second story, he goes back into the Fairy Queen with, um, at that point, it's just with Chalmers, right? I believe so, yes. Yeah, it's just, it's, just, um, it's just Harold and Chalmers, and they go into the land of the Fairy Queen, but they end up bringing back somebody with them as well. They bring back Belphebe. Yes, Belphebe, who... Oh, and Florimel. And Florimel. And uh, get to, up to many hijinks there. And uh, Belphebe is probably my favorite character in the series. Um Probably a good prototype for the ranger character. We'll talk more about that in the game room. But a good prototype for the ranger character that is not an Aragorn, Lord uh, J.R.R. Tolkien model of a, a ranger. Yeah, because what's happening in the story at that point is uh, Harold is wandering through the woods. I forget exactly what's happening, but he's in trouble. I believe he's fighting the Losols at that point, which are these kind of these cannibalistic ape men. And it looks like he's outnumbered and he's not going to be able to get away. But then a an arrow uh, flings through the air at the very last moment and saves the day. And the woman who is uh, holding onto that bow is Belphebe, who then he's instantly smitten with because uh, he's, he's not interested in the, the boring drab women of his world. He wants women of excitement. and That's true. And in fact, one of the characters who is most deserved is uh, his uh... Secretary Gertrude Muggler. Is it the secretary? Uh, Well, I don't know because they're also going on dates together and she seems to think that they're going to get married, but he doesn't seem to agree with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And she doesn't uh, appear much after the first book, as I recall. No, uh, she she is. Actually, she is in the second book because at the very beginning of the second book, 
uh, Chalmers and Belphebe have gone missing. So Harold is looking, is trying to figure out what happened to them. And the police are hanging around thinking that uh, some, some, some foul play has been afoot. And Gertrude is absolutely saying that something bad has happened and is trying to get Harold in trouble. That's, uh, you're correct. Uh, it's telling, though, that she doesn't get to go on any of the adventures or do much of the fun stuff. Um, but, you know, there are women who exist in these worlds who get to do that, but not, she does not get to go over there. Yeah, the, the, the women of the real world don't get to go and have adventures, but they but the men in the real world get to go back and meet adventurous women, which is cool. Yeah. Right? That part's cool, at least. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, she's, she's, she's a fun character, and she's very competent and able. And then with the third book, The Wall of Serpents, that's really the one that I, I cared the least for, uh, the three. The uh, Iron Castle. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. uh, The Iron Castle. Oh, castle Castle of Iron. Now I'll go correct myself. The, the Castle, castle of, of Iron. Iron. Yeah, that's the one that I cared the least for. I really kind of felt like it It kind of dragged. Um, and maybe at that point, some of it might just be reading three stories, three somewhat similar stories in a row can be a little mentally exhausting. Um, that certainly could be an element. I feel maybe for myself that I just was not as familiar with the works of uh, – Spencer or Ariosto, and I had more to hang my hat on with the first book and um, my level of familiarity with uh, Norse myth. And it seems like as each story goes on, there's, you know, there's just more and more characters, not only people from the real world who travel over, because by the time you're in the, the third book, you've now, you've now got, um, I think, five people who travel into the land of the Castle of Iron. Right. We have uh, Vatsi, who is uh, their sort of uh, sex-crazed uh, Polish or Czechoslovakian colleague. Who's yes. A, uh, also a psychologist, but yeah, he's quite immature, um, who ends up turning into uh, a werewolf, although uh-huh. it's not immediately evident uh, at the beginning of uh, his presence in the story. Due to some botched magic. Right. Um, but also quite symbolic because, uh, you know, he's a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then we've got Pete the Cop. Right. Pete the Cop, who is a, a fake Irishman. I believe he's also a, of a, a Eastern European descent, but I can't remember correctly. Oh, no, he's, he's Jewish, and he's, but he's a fake Irishman. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that aspect of I it. I think so, yeah. So overall, would you say that you enjoyed reading, reading this book? Um, I think the first one, uh, as you say, was the one that sort of had the most velocity. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one had some moments, and, and surprisingly, even for the light moments, there was some uh, dark stuff, like when they basically massacre the evil magicians at the end, and there's mm. you know decapitating them and skewering them. <laughs> um, but the third one, I felt, was a, almost like a comedy of manners, and it didn't quite move. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but and it was the longest of the three. It feels like the longest. Yeah. And I think it actually is, okay. page count-wise. Okay. But I, I think in, even if it wasn't, it still also felt like the longest. And, and in some ways, it also felt the least fantastic. I mean, I think the mm. first one... You know, you're literally dealing with gods. And in the second two stories, you're dealing with characters from fantastic stories, but not not gods. And the land of fairy. Yeah, the land of fairy. Um, and it, Which it, is it, less fantastical than it sounds. Right. But. It seems just like a – it seems almost, a, you know, like Midsummer Night's Dream or something like that. They're just kind of wandering through the woods and everybody happens to be in the woods, um, you know, just kind of tripping over each other almost. Yeah, where it seems like a lot of the drama in the third story is being double-crossed by wicked innkeepers. And <laughs> right. Although, in fairness, like there is plenty of, like, we're flying around on magic carpets, disguised as, uh, disguised as a fritz or, right. the, or the jan. I forget the difference right. between a fritz and jan. Right. And, and Sir Roger, who a lot of the story hinges around, is an example of, I guess you would say, a paladin in some regards. And he is, um, in fact, I believe one of the paladins of Charlemagne, it turns out. I know that they use the word paladin to describe him quite a bit. Yeah. Um, in any event, though, um, I think one of the most unique features of this series is the magic system um, in terms of that it is uh, actually uh, physical principles underlying each sort of fantastical world. And the, the job of the magician is to find out what the rules are and then bend those rules to make them work to his or her advantage. Absolutely. And I think that that was very, um, very fundamental to the creation of Gygax's magic system. And do, did we want to go ahead and move on over to the game room now, or do we want to hold on, hold off on that conversation? Um, is we have any more literary aspects that we want to talk about? I think um, we may find that uh, when we read the further works by DeCamp, that, uh, that Harold Shea has a lot in common with uh, sort of the typical, I don't know if there's a, a DeCampian protagonist, um, 
But I, one thing I noticed, again, I said he was a very much of a smartass, and he always seemed to think he was smarter than everyone in the worlds that he visited, although that was not necessarily borne out by his actual actions. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I thought was a little... Um, uh, maybe I, I can almost relate it to certain gamers I played with, where somehow this guy with some modern 20th century sport fencing was able to defeat uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, trained knights with his sharpened uh, fencing sword, and with their they were apparently just clumsy oafs with their broadswords, and you know his their sheer strength and decades of training was no match for his you know wit and style. Sure. And, and, you know, this being a brand new podcast, we may find that dividing it into the library and the game room and keeping these conversations separate might end up proving to be kind of difficult to do. So we might end up doing away with that. We'll figure that out. But I, I, I would like to add to that conversation and say that, like, it also – and one thing I love about that is we've got the competent swordsman and magician, which is something that when you read the early edition of – early editions of D&D, wizards were not allowed to carry anything more than a dagger – and they were very squishy and easy to kill. Where Harold's casting spells, and he's also a very competent swordsman. Yeah, I think that is the potentially the dichotomy between the war game roots of D and D from via chainmail and the sort of literary roots of D and D, and that the role of the I guess we're now in the game room maybe that the role of the magician almost resembles the sort of artillery pieces in a, a war game, which is not really capable of defending itself, but can project a lot of power, whereas the fighter more resembles literally a literal tank. Um, so that's a sort of maybe the dichotomy of grafting on a literary influence onto a, a pre-existing systems that were being used for war games. Sure, absolutely. And I, I can also just imagine in the early game design saying, okay, well, we're giving wizards spells, so we have to limit them in some way. So I can also see them, I, I can also see that possibly in the early game design, they were kind of these like false restrictions to keep parts of that class down so that the warrior can shine in its own way, but the wizard can shine in his own way. Um, but it is interesting when you, when you read this stuff and you see the very clear connections to, um, from Appendix N to the early designs of D&D and the very clear departures. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those clear departures for me. Right, right. Uh but the major, major influence, I would say, at least from the first book, is that it led into the creation of the uh, giant series of modules yes. in AD&D, specifically G1, Steading of the Hill Giant Chief, uh, and onwards. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, do you, how did you find the... Um, how did you find going back to the source after having looked at the modules or having maybe played the modules in your, in your time? Well, I'm actually in the middle of playing this module at the moment, which is pretty exciting. I'm in uh, Andy Action's weekly BX game, and we're doing Steading of the Hill Giant right now, which is pretty pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. I um, As soon as I was reading the first story, and I'm in this giant wooden hall that's full of frost giants and fire giants and hill giants, and they're having this big party, and there's a, the, the, the big roast, and animals are being eaten, and they're playing and laughing and doing cr- and playing crazy games. Like It was very, very clearly... The direct source of st- the, the direct influence and inspiration for setting of the hill giant. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you find your play experience uh, re- reflecting what was happening in the stories? Uh, it feels a little bit maybe more um, less room for wit maybe in the, the original uh, first edition D anD D, but maybe that's just how we approach it as gamers. Yeah, right now, um, <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, I'm not currently hanging out inside the steading um, by somebody by, by the side of some god who's got my back. Uh, so I also think, you know, it, it's, it's, it depends on who your allies are. And in this situation, Harold's got some pretty strong allies. <laughs> there you go. Um, but it is actually interesting because it is actually interesting because uh, I think uh, in modern game design, there's very much the idea of sort of balance and balanced parties and and such like, whereas uh, early game design did not really hinge on that as much. And again, literally you have Harold, who is maybe in the grand scheme of things, uh, a level one, level two character hanging mm-hmm. out with a literal god yeah, and, and being able to hold his own. Um, whereas today you would say, no, 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 that couldn't happen. They have to get up to 20th level or something like that before they can start hanging out with gods and the like. Sure. Um, so I think that is a, a, a telling difference in many ways. I would completely agree with that. And I would say that while reading The Complete Enchanter, 
It's not one of my favorite books. I did enjoy reading it, though. But it is so clear that this was an incredibly influential book on D&D. In addition to just the Steading on the Hill Giants, I mean, I feel like half of the monster manual is in this book. You know, I was making I was making a list while I was going through it. And in this book, we have dwarves, frost giants, hill giants, fire giants, dragons, trolls, uh, water fae, cockatrices, unicorns, wyverns, imps, hobgoblins, hippogriffs, werewolves, centaurs, ifrit, and jan. That is one <laughs> heck of a list. <laughs> yes! And it's like half of the monster manual. <laughs> Why do you think this book in particular uh, fired Gary Gygax's imagination more so than any other works in terms of the things that we just talked about? It's hard to say. You know, I don't know Gary personally, but it is fun. Um, it's fun. It's it's fun exploring who this person may or may not have been based on his writings and what we know were his inspirations. And my sense of Gary based on this kind of stuff is that he definitely was a bit of a, bit of a, um, um, how did you describe Harold Shea in the beginning? Smartass. Yeah, a bit of a smartass. <laughs> um, I feel like, I feel like Gary most likely really identified with Harold Shea and saw himself behaving very similarly in these kinds of situations. I certainly see an element of that. It is actually very interesting that, uh, we've talked about this in the past, uh, before we ever started this podcast, that the ground zero for role-playing games was sort of the, upper Midwest with its long winters yes, with plenty of time to think about these things. And maybe someone who was maybe a little bit uh, off the beam or just you know, slightly unusual for their environment uh, might have then became, you know, started maybe to see themselves from a, a layer above and look down on this world and say, okay, these are the pieces and I am, you know, not quite of this world. Sure. Like a Harold Shea might have been. Sure, sure. Yeah. And I also think that, um, I mean, this book is ripe for the picking. You know, there's just so much stuff in here that you can just take out here and throw immediately into a game. And I don't, um, I don't envy Gary for when he was trying to come up with a magic system because that's tricky stuff. And I know that we often refer to the Gygaxian ma- magic system as, as, as Vankian magic or Vancian magic. Um, do you say Vancian or Vancian? I say Vancian, but, Vancian. Uh, you know, tomato, tomato. Sure. So Vancian magic. And without a doubt, Vance is a huge role in the magic system. But I would say that the complete enchanter is half of it. I'd say it's half complete enchanter. It's half Harold Shea, half Jack Vance dying Earth. Um, I would tend to agree. And maybe it's because Jack Vance and the camp and Fletcher Pratt, for that matter, actually went to the extent of somewhat codifying the system, unlike some of the other works that we will be reading. Mm-hmm. Certainly, for example, Tolkien never describes how magic works in his universe. Oh, sure. Uh, we, we never understand exactly what Gandalf can and can't do right. or the price of his spells. Like, right. can he just can he just cast spells all day long right. or is it physically weakening him somehow? These are things we never find out. Right, right. And perhaps this is maybe the appeal, uh, this sort of codifiable system. Maybe I've noticed that uh, many gamers, uh, me not excluded, are the kind of people who like to categorize things, mm-hmm. list things. Um, maybe there's an element of uh, OCD-ness in our, that brings us to the, uh, the hobby. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I don't want to uh, diagnose any of the desi- designers of the various games, but uh, you know, to create a game itself, you, you could not be totally freeform. You would have to be a per- kind of person who likes to categorize and list things. Absolutely. You know, and with the Vancian system, that's definitely where we get that you cast a spell once and it goes away. But this is where we get the uh, verbal and somatic components. And if you don't mind, there's actually a little section in here that I think is worth just uh, um, reading for a second. Go for it. Uh, So this is from page 281 of The Complete Enchanter. The normal spells consist of two components, which may be termed the verbal and the somatic. In the verbal section, the consideration is whether the spell is to be based upon command of the materials at hand or upon the invocation of a higher authority. So like right there, he's saying that spells need to have the verbal, the verbal component, and then it needs to have the, like the hand gestures and the body movements as well. Um, but part of, part of the, the somatic component is also the, the material requirements for mm. the spell. Right. So in, in, in Harold Shane, The Complete Enchanter, there are examples of him 
casting specifically written down spells. Loki hands him the parchment that has the spidery runic writing on it, and and he's and, and Loki tells him to read it backwards and forwards, and he does. And he knows that this is some kind of spell that's going to allow him to see through illusions, and he's reading through it backwards and forwards, and it's not working until something happens and his eyes become bleary. And once his once he gets tears in his eyes and he's reading it, he can now see through illusions. So that's an example of a written spell. But most of the spells that Harold Shea and uh, Reed Chalmers are casting in this book are things they're just kind of making up on the fly. Right, and that's an element of the their cleverness there. And that was not an element in the AD&D system of magicians just being able to make up spells in this system. They had to go quest for spells at best and find spell books. But I do recall from the first edition Player's Handbook that specifically every spell was listed whether it had a verbal, somatic, or material component. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fallen by the wayside with later editions. I think so too. And I think what Gary was looking for in devise, devising a magic system was ways to limit it so that you didn't have people just making spells all over the place and casting spells all day long because I'm sure he was concerned it would break the game. So with Vance, he had the limits of once you cast a spell, it's out of your head. And with Harold, with Harold Shea, you have the limit of you need to have the correct objects and um, the right, hand, sim- sim- the right, the right uh, hand gestures, and you needed to know the right words. So if you don't have your material components, if your hands are bound, if you're in a, if you're in a, a space of silence, you can't cast these spells. And of course, I was playing it wrong all those years when I was a kid. I, w- I remember seeing all those components, but we never actually used them. And then, so, I never did either. Right. And so it's telling that the later editions just dropped that entirely. I think that was uh, maybe a drag on the mental, me- cognitive overload for most people. Now, I never played OD&D. Were, this, were these elements avail- uh, present in OD&D, or was it more with the sort of codification that came with AD&D? You know, I don't recall, now that I'm thinking back on that, with, in the Men and Magic books, in the original three booklets, um, I, the, the spells were very short. Each is just a couple of sentences in most cases. Um, I don't think it said ma- specific material components that were required. I, I think that that happened more once uh, Basic came out and the advanced versions came out. But I could be wrong there. I would, I would need to go back and look. Well, that might actually have a chronological rationale because if this edition that we're reading is in 1976, I'm not saying that Gary didn't read it before then. Yeah. We do have to consider that OD&D came out in 1974 and that AD&D didn't come out until 1978. So if it was not president, uh, not present in OD&D, maybe he saw how the game was being played and, as you say, he wanted to codify it, limit it, make sure that uh, you know, things weren't getting too far out of hand and so decided to put that back into AD&D at that point. That does make a lot of sense, and also I, that that goes to explain why many of the titles that are on the appendix end are from after 1974. You know, because I know that when I was first approaching the appendix end, I was thinking that it was going to be things that just inspired the first incarnation of Dungeons and Dragons, which was 1974. But there were many titles that came out that's on that are on that list that came out between 74 and 79. When the when the Advanced Dungeon Master's Guide came out, um, so I, I do think the system was evolving, and he was still looking more and more to fiction to find interesting and creative solutions. And Jeff, have you been able to look at any sort of the precursors of Appendix N? I believe that was in the Strategic Review or Dragon Magazine. Tim Cask and Gary may have uh, cited some works or had short articles on that. I I don't have them in front of me. I've never seen them, but I've heard that these are out there. Yeah, I have. I've. Um, I don't know about uh, nothing by Tim Cask, but I've. Re- there was an article in Dragon Magazine. I don't recall which one. It was. It was an interview with Gary Gygax, and in it, if I recall correctly, he does cite um, Harold Shea, um, Lovecraft, Thafford and Greymouser, and the Dying Earth as like the most influential ones. But that's also the same article where he mentions Bram Stoker as being uh, very influential on the system as well. And Bram Stoker is not listed in Appendix N at all, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. Okay. Anything else we need to say about the uh, game game usability? Certainly we have the monsters. We have evidence of some of the classes, uh, certainly with Belphoebe as a ranger. uh, Belphoebe or Belphoebe as a potential ranger. uh, And Sir Roger as... 
maybe not the prototypical paladin because that might be a Holger Carlson from uh, Three Hearts and Three Lions, but uh, certainly possibly. A- but the fact that paladin is a word that's used, I think, is worth mentioning. As is the word druid. We have druids and paladins in this book, but they don't appear the way that you and I think of a druid and a paladin today. Mm-hmm. You know, in here it seems like paladin is almost just another word for knight. Mm-hmm. A mighty warrior, maybe dedicated to a cause, but not with any special powers and abilities. Absolutely, it, it's he's a he's a warrior who wears lots of armor, who rides atop, who rides horseback, and is very devoted to a god. Mm. Um, and then the druids in this are actually more cultists, because uh, the druids are sacrificing somebody with the big scary-looking dagger on an altar, and. Uh, they actually talk a little bit about uh, the kind of magic they're performing there as well, which I also think is an interesting little section to quote. Um, see, oh yeah, that's I actually do have that accessible. It's on page 204. Uh, they said, um, that's page 203. One man invokes their gods, another changes the altar from wood to stone, and so on. One man per function and all timed to work together. That's real organization. So with the druids in the Harold Shea stories, they're not spellcasters individually, but they're working together to do these big rituals by calling upon the force of their higher power. Right. And that's an interesting aspect of D&D that um, they talk about it, but I don't recall there really being any ritual magic in the various versions of D&D we played. And that may just reflect the sort of tactical nature of the uh, origins of D&D, but certainly no long, elaborate, one-off rituals that are very common in fantasy and swords and sorcery novels. Strangely enough, I don't recall seeing it until 4th edition, and it is interesting that 4th edition would be the first to actually use it. Hmm. And, uh, well, this is not a 4th edition podcast, but were there any features in 4th uh, edition that you feel sort of reflect Appendix N more accurately, as well as the uh, ritual, po- ritual spellcasting? And I would say, although we're not a fourth edition podcast, I'd also say we're not an anything podcast. I, I, I think I think all game systems are totally fair game for us to chat about here. And what I would say was probably the rationale behind it is I think the spells in fourth edition were far more designed to be for battles. And clearly, if you only have tactical combat spells, you're losing a, 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 an important chunk of the game because you need to be able to you know, speak with dead people right. and you need to be able to detect magic and right. things like that. All the informational yeah. intelligence, uh, mystery solving spells. Absolutely. So I think those were added in uh, with a different mechanic for that reason. And although the, the, the reason behind it might not be um, terribly in line with the Appendix N, I do think in a way that did kind of help give a new vibe to the game that I had never experienced before. And it made me more interested in the idea of rituals as something that spellcasters can do. Right. And that is a big theme of a lot of the, the uh, Panic and literature, stopping some heinous ritual that happens in a specific time in a specific place. Yep. And uh, I certainly don't see that as much in sort of the first edition or BNX role-playing. It's true. Now, I would say that in the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide, there are many spells that have long casting times. There are some that have a casting time of uh, one turn, which is 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Some that have, like, I think a few hours. Again, that's probably where I was playing it wrong because I don't remember actually ever ca- having the long <laughs> casting times like that. And also you might not have been playing high-level characters because I also believe that most of those are pretty... Oh, no, we all cheated and had 30, 30th-level <laughs> characters. <laughs> I don't think I ever had a first-level character past the first game. <laughs> Then you were playing it your way, which is great. <laughs> As I said, we played it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but rules is written. Uh, many of the spells in the old school uh, did have long casting time, uh, spe- spe- specifically ones that were clearly not combat spells. Mm-hmm. Um, and always Featherfall has been one that you can cast in a second, mm-hmm. because if it was a five-minute ritual, when would you ever use Featherfall? Right, right. <laughs> and um, there's a lot of fun stuff here with the magic. Like, for example, the fact that we've got a magic broom, and a flying carpet, uh-huh. both in this story as well, uh, in this book as well. And uh, in addition to the items, monsters, and classes, is there anything from the actual story structure that we think we could use for adventurers or role-playing? That's a good question. Because one of the things that I'm personally looking for when I'm reading this stuff is I'm looking for 
well, I'm looking to enjoy it. I like, I want to have fun reading the story. And I'm usually getting that, but not always. I'm also looking for, um, I'm looking for a, a deeper understanding about where our, where this thing that we love came from. And I'm also looking for ways to inspire me now um, and things that I can take and use in my current games. And I would say that this book really delivers on the building and understanding of where our hobby came from. But I would say it underdelivers, or at least underdelivered for me, on inspiring me to come up with new and interesting ways to run my own games, with the exception of I really like how they handle the concept of interdimensional travel. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, reading a mathematical formula and then being whisked away is kind of silly. But I really like the idea that what's happening when you go to another to another world is not just that you are suddenly you in another world. You are now living in this other world that has a different core assumption, that has different physics, and that your mind has been altered to 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 match those core assumptions of that universe. Mm-hmm. Like, for example... Harold Shea shows up in, in old Norway or in mythical Norway and can speak Old Norse. He doesn't realize he's speaking Old Norse until he's looking at runes and realizing that he can read them. And then it suddenly occurs to him, he's like, oh, man, I've been speaking Old Norse this whole time. Right. And when he casts spells in each different world, he sort of has to relearn the assumptions of each world before Absolutely. he can start casting his spells. And he thinks he's uh, like munchkinning the system when he first goes over there because like he brings a gun with him and some matches with him. And his gun doesn't work in Old Norway. His right. matches don't work in right. Old Norway. Right. Like he's bringing some, something that's stainless steel and it right. instantly starts rusting. Right. Because they have no conception of metal that could not rust under the fog and mists of the sort of land of the giants. Yes. And so, so to, 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 to bring that to your original question of what I, what I found inspiring about it that I could use in my own gaming – would be it got me thinking about how I could use those kinds of concepts with interdimensional travel in my own gaming. You know, I, I like the idea that when you go somewhere else, the things that you can do might change. Like I forget, did, did you ever watch? Uh, did you ever watch Angel? Yes, with uh, David Boreanaz. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So in the end of season two, uh, he and the cast of characters for several episodes go to this other world called Pylea. Do you remember that? Right, with the, the host Lauren's homeworld. Absolutely. And one of the things Angel was regularly doing is when he wanted to, like, do something freaky, he would, like, put on his vampire face, you know, and then right. suddenly you've got the the um, the body double, the stunt double, who's right. now wearing the same, the right. same vampire face. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, but in Pylea, there's a point where he activates it, and instead of getting all bumpy, he becomes all, like, spiny. Mm-hmm. And he discovers that he's way more powerful in this form, in this other world, but he has a really hard time coming back to his human form. And there's something really exciting and interesting about the idea of as a judge, DM, game master, whatever, um, having your people go through portals and then playing and altering with how their abilities work in those worlds. Of course, gamers, the the gamers at your table hate that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And... And if you want to be a real evil DM, you yeah. go like you like using Dungeon Call Classics for an example. Like you go into the Purple Planet, and like they they end up like getting some like really cool like you know, I don't know like laser guns or something, and then they go back to their world, and the laser guns don't do anything. <laughs> uh, and almost the worst thing you can do, although it's not specifically in this book, and we'll come to it later on, is uh, take away some hard-earned treasure or ability of the uh, gamers as they. You know, they um, that they have gained through play. Mm-hmm. and um, But it is interesting that uh, that's a very common trope in the fiction that is not re- necessarily reflected in the gaming, where, as you say, he travels to a different world, loses his power, or can't use this piece of uh, equipment. And, uh, and in fact, the idea of uh, maybe prior to Planescape, even though the various planes were available in D&D, there was not necessarily, and again, this could have just been how I was gaming, there was not the idea of traveling to these dimensions constantly or mm-hmm. being a person from say, quote-unquote, our Earth, normal Earth, entering a fantasy world, which is very common in the fantasy fiction that was in Appendix N, and um, maybe less common in today's fiction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a very common trope back then, but much much less common now. That's for sure. So I'm curious, uh, is there anything that you found that you would want to bring into your gaming? Um, I did like that this, although it's not formally a party, 
did have sort of the idea of a troop, uh, a troop mm. of characters, and that they each had different roles mm-hmm. uh, to play and different personalities. And um, you know, it's, a lot of times these days you'll see just um, you know a single protagonist, you know, and everything through the lens of single protagonist. Um, and maybe that was always that way with you know, say the Conan stories and stuff like that. But um, that they are not, you know, Harold Shea thinks he's smarter and better, but he ultimately is not that much more powerful uh, than all of the characters around him. Yeah. Um, and that uh, in many instances, for example, Belle Phoebe saves his, you know, saves his bacon. She does. Um, and that each of the characters has a bit of business to do. Mm-hmm. So you can almost see them sort of, uh, you know, maybe the judge or DM saying, okay, it's your turn now, and giving the spotlight to another character, so yeah. to speak. So I think, uh, I think that that's there. Um, and that's a useful thing to remember. And bringing up Belphebe and him uh, and and her saving Harold's skin, I think another thing that you can take from this and bring to your games is that if your party is overwhelmed and the tide is turning against them, you don't have to go into a TPK. Uh, it would start to feel cheap if every time things turn on your party, you bring in some kind of deuces machina and like somebody saves the day. But I think if you do it once at an interesting moment, I think it can be a, a, a fun incorporation and a good way to introduce a new NPC in an interesting way. Um, and, and that's certainly what happened with Belphebe. That's how right. we that's how we were introduced to her. Right. And another element um, that is counter to role playing, and but it's very common in fiction, is that the party does get split in fiction. Mm-hmm. And maybe as a judge or DM, maybe we don't punish the party, the players for splitting the party. Uh, of course, it's obviously harder to run a split uh, split party at the table, but maybe we can and reward... And to keep everybody interested. And to keep everyone interested. But maybe there's ways to do that or tag team or do dual GM from time to time to let it happen in its own way. But I think that uh, if we're trying to emulate the fiction, uh, we don't want to automatically punish people for splitting the party and doing the logical thing and saying, oh, you know what? You're special. You're good at this thing. Why don't you go over there and check this thing out? I'm good at this thing. and Go check this thing out. Yeah. So I think that that is... Um, you know, in the interest of the fiction, if that's what we're trying to emulate. If not, of course, by all means, it's your table. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. Another one of the common tropes that we're seeing in The Complete Enchanter, which we see in a lot of these stories, is an exchange of riddles with a more powerful being. So in this story, we meet the blatant beast, and then Harold, and in, in this case, it's not a riddle. It's, you know, Harold tells it a very, very dirty story. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, even that's common, too, because I, I believe that that happens in um, Three well, Hearts and Three Lions, too, certainly right? Certainly that, and certainly uh, Bilbo riddling with uh, Gollum in, uh, you know, The Hobbit. So that's certainly an element. And of course, we go can go all the way back to, you know, Greek myth with, uh, you know, yeah. uh, Orpheus, I guess. Uh, but I think the idea of incorporating encounters with monsters the players have no way of beating unless they kind of do this interesting and fun thing is also something you can take from this book and from the the tropes of the genre in general and bring back to your game to kind of keep their players on keep your players on their toes absolutely and that's also is maybe a more rewarding way to approach uh, low level play in certain systems to allow people to sort of uh, bypass the problems with clever pet play rather than you know, but still have very powerful uh, adversaries in the game. Absolutely, because just because you're first level doesn't mean that everything you're fighting should be goblins and giant rats. You know, there's really interesting things you can be going out there and doing, and Harold Jay is a great example of that. You know, we're, when we've got when we're looking at people like Conan, uh, Conan from the very beginning is a really powerful force of nature, and Harold, you know, he's a he's a very talented swordsman, and he's a clever dude who can figure some things out and like make some magic work. But he's no Conan. No. He's the analog of, uh, I would suppose, what most uh, fantasy fans and gamers would like to think they would be in that similar situation. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, certainly not. Uh, there's no way someone automatically wakes up saying, I'm going to be Conan today. But you might say, hey, you know, I could be Harold Shea. Now, if you were going to try to play a Harold Shea character in, in AD&D without multiclassing. Mm, that's a tricky one. Which class would you make Harold Shea? He's not exactly a magician as written rules as written in AD and D. Um, and even in the story, in yeah. the first one, he's casting a lot of magic. By the second and third, yeah. Reed Chalmers is doing most of the magic. Right. He might be closer to uh, um, if we're talking about uh, something that has uh, fighting abilities and spells. 
that's sort of the ranger, although he's not a native, uh, a nature character, because that's, again, Belphoebe. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the paladin has some spells, although they tend to be more clerical. Yeah. Um, you could make a case for him being a thief because he's reading the scroll that Loki gives him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think there's an exact way to model him, at least certainly in the original AD, you know, D&D. Maybe that's why systems like RuneQuest, et cetera, popped up that mm. allow characters to do more things without, quote-unquote, multi-classing. That's a really good point, because I I do think that's one of the things I've been noticing is I look at a lot of my protagonists from these Appendix N stories, and I have a hard time placing them in an AD&D class, because a lot of them really don't easily fit into that mold. And we'll talk about that more when we get to, like, Fafford and Grey Mouser and Conan, but, like, like, Fafford and Conan are both very strong, powerful swordsmen, and they're Climbing sheer surfaces right. and bees. picking locks. Right. And, <laughs> and the mouser has magical abilities. Absolutely. Was a former wizard's apprentice. Um, yeah, I think, uh, again, harking back to the uh, an idea that we talked about before, which is the sort of mechanical wargaming roots that uh, – and then the literary assumptions getting grafted on top. And so I think they were doing the best with the set of tools they had, but obviously we have now um, – and this is not to denigrate AD&D because it's still my favorite game, but – uh, we have 40 more years of game theory and game design principles that will allow us to more closely model any sort of literary idea that we want to deal with. Um, and, um, you know, all props to Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax for getting us to where they got in the first place. Um, but, uh, again, you know, everything is iterative, and so now we can, if we wanted to, more closely model the fiction. Yeah, completely. Now, I also noticed that uh, while reading through this, and these are kind of, you know, smaller things to point out, but um, there is a moment where Harold Shea decides to take off some of his armor so that he's not so encumbered. There's a moment where Belphoebe is worried that she's running out of arrows. So there, there is some kind of very basic resource management in the fiction, uh, which I feel like I don't see that often in, in this kind of fiction. And, um, yeah, it's one of those questions where I don't really know how much resource management really fits with the vibe of pulp fiction and pulp fantasy and Appendix N Swords and Sorcery. Um, with, with your gaming, do you prefer kind of more inventory management or do you prefer to kind of hand wave a lot of that stuff? In theory, I would prefer inventory management, uh, but Again, the cognitive load is heavy if you're a judge. Yes. But I think it does create uh, dramatic situations, though. So if you can say you're down to your last arrow, now the character who's not so great at melee has to draw his sword and get in there. Um, I think that's very compelling. Um, you're, you're down to your last torch. Do you, you know, do you fight in the dark? Do you retreat? You know, what is that, what is that going to do for you? Now, certainly game, certain games such as Torchbearer are built completely around that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does set a different tone. And, um, you know, with Conan, he's borderline superhuman, let's say, you know, or the peak of humanity, whereas Harold Shea is a very, very clever guy, but not um, not that. Sure. And so... And he gets pretty seriously wounded at one point. Right. And so that, that ups the stakes. So I think that um, anything that you can do to up the stakes without necessarily increasing your cognitive load as a DM or judge um, is worth it. And I, so I think, you know, again, it depends the flavor of the game. You know, if people, the players that you want, if you want to create that tension and people are willing to go with that, that's great. And then some players really want sort of more sort of uh, um, here's my jollies. I get to kill, you know, a horde of orcs. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and especially if you have a short game, you know, maybe a four-hour time slot. Sure. Then, you know, you should maybe hand wave that. But I think in a campaign setting or if you know your players and you can, you can certainly try the more resource intense, resource management style, um, you know, with an open table setting, maybe it's more appropriate to hand wave that stuff. So. Cool. Yeah. And I've not read any of the uh, any of the Elric stuff yet, mm-hmm. which future Jeff will listen to this episode at one point and yeah. be like, oh, you poor, poor creature. Like, how, how could you not have read those books yet? Uh, but I haven't read them yet. So I haven't read the great stories of like Law versus Chaos. Mm-hmm. And they talk a little bit about Law versus Chaos in, um, in Three Hearts and Three Lions. But in Complete Enchanter, there's also this like one like kind of throwaway line but because of the importance that's placed on law and chaos in old school D&D, I, I jotted it down. And it says, men and gods live by law, else they would be but giants. Hmm. That's a good one. Yeah. I thought that was kind of a cool line. And also, 
in Three Hearts and Three Lions, which we'll discuss it at another point, um, they also talk about how men are aligned with law. So it's interesting to me that in Complete Enchanter and Three Hearts and Three Lions, there's this, this idea that men are aligned with law, um, but then in D&D, you choose if you're lawful, neutral, or chaotic, and it seems like there's a pretty even spread between the three. Mm-hmm. Just because you're a human does not imply that you are pro the forces of civilization and lawfulness and arguably goodliness. Right. And then on a even more disparate take in the Lamentations of the Flame Princess role-playing, weird fantasy role-playing game, uh, it basically implies that 99% of people are neutral. And mm-hmm. in fact, every human being in the real world who has ever lived, evil or not, uh, is neutral and that the uh, alignment is a more cosmic issue. So all magic users are chaotic and all clerics are lawful and mm-hmm. everybody else is pretty much neutral. Um, so that's a yet another take on it. So I guess uh, to what extent you use alignment in your game is uh, very interesting. I think in AD&D when we started getting to the uh, nine al- three axis nine alignments um, <laughs> that was a lot, again, also cognitive, ov- uh, not overload, but co- a lot heavy cognitive load. And there's certainly no no no, wor- no place I'm aware of where there's a, where there's a an, app- an appendix and root for that. Right. I don't think there's anybody who's speaking the chaotic good alignment language <clears throat> in any of our appendix and novels. No, I don't think so. <laughs> um, but that is worth exploring if, if that's something you're really into is, is what is it? It's not just behavioral. What can we extrapolate out of these alignments and, and, and um, create? You know, and again, we can see some more of the more obvious structures in the Paul Anderson and um, Michael Moorco- Moorcock books later on down the road in this in this. Uh, grand experiment of ours. Absolutely. And this is probably a good place to wrap up this episode unless there's any anything else that you want to bring up before we finish up. Uh, no, this is, uh, as with all Appendix N work, I think that there's uh, plenty to be mined from them. So I think uh, regardless of um, how you feel from a purely narrative point of view, I think that this work is um, seminal and, and should be looked at. I agree. Um, and uh, we hope that uh, you will read it and give us some feedback on what you took away from the, this book and from the podcast. Uh, so drop us a note at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We will read all your emails. Absolutely. And if you want to come by and sit with us and go through the books together, please join us at uh, meetup.com slash DCCNYC. You can sign up for the Appendix and Book Clubs there and read along with us. And also please leave us a rating and a review at iTunes that way we can get some more visibility and we can continue to grow the the listenership thank you people we'll see you in the stacks read on 